So today we are continuing in our series of week two of what to do when you don't know what to do. How many of you guys have ever faced an impossible situation where it seems as there was no way out? It seems as though every way that you looked at it from your perspective, from your view, is that it just seemed like it, it, it was just, just going to fail. No matter what, it was going to be a disaster in the way that you tried to approach it. it. It seemed like there was no relief, no help, no way out. Last week, we, we started this, this thing and of what to do when you don't know what to do. And the truth is that every single one of us at every stage of our life, whether you are a young person, a teenager, a young adult, newly married, married with kids, married with adult kids, grandparents, retired, whatever stage, we all hit these different seasons and these different times where we kind of step back and we go, God, all of my life experience, I still don't know what to do. And it seems impossible on our own. And impossible to know what to do in those situations. And as uh, we, we acknowledge at the beginning of our service of just the, the unrest in our, in our cities and in our nation, uh, we hear a lot about protests happening and things like that. And I was thinking back about that today and this moment of not knowing what to do in a moment when I was young. Interestingly enough, there used to be protests that happened right in front of my house. Right? Yeah. I, Nancy heard this story this last, uh, this last spring when we were with my family, and she looked at me, and she goes, where did you grow up? Okay, so a little bit of background. So my family, I was born in Long Island, New York, and we moved, when I was a young age, to Georgia. And a lot of times I say Atlanta, but the truth is we moved to Georgia. We moved to the South, where it was the real deal South. And when we got there, coming from Long Island, New York, to this southern town where people hung the Confederate flag from their house, it was swinging from the back of the trucks. And I just thought everybody was a Dukes of Hazard fan because I was a Dukes of Hazard fan. I was like, oh, look, more Dukes of Hazard fans, right? Um, but that's not the case. There, there, there was a bit of, a, bit of, you know, a bit of animosity there. And so when we first moved there, we, we, we got involved in our church and went to a Christian school. And then around the eighth grade age of my older brother, he started going to the public school. And then they come to find out, you know, on the bus and stuff, that he was from New York. He was a Yankee. And they were not having it that they had a Yankee move into their neighborhood. You know, this is T-shirts of the South will rise again. You know, go back where you came from, go home. And honestly, after he started school that year, after school, there would be about a group of 10 to 15 teenagers coming outside of our house and yelling, Yankee, go home. Yankee, go home. The South will rise again out in front of our home. All right, every single day, my mom would come out there with the Bible, preaching scripture out there. It was just crazy. You know, we'd go to midweek church service. We'd come home. Our mailbox would be tied up and strung up in a tree somehow. Our house got rolled multiple times. We got egged multiple times. It was just like this, this constant not knowing what to do in this situation. I remember like us talking about it as a family and even praying about it. And like the scripture preaching at them wasn't doing anything, mom. I think we got to have a new strategy. And so one day my brother's getting off the bus and like kind of the leader of the gang is like, he says something else smart to my brother. And I don't know what his response was. Hopefully he's like, let's, let's see if the South will rise again. I don't know if he said that, but that would be a great say, phrase if he did. And so he kind of called him out to like, let's settle this once and for all today. And so after school that day, there was this whole group of people and my older brother was going to throw down with this guy. 
the leader of this guy, this guy named Chris that was the, the leader of the pack. And empowered by anger, whatever it was, Holy Spirit, I don't know what it was that came upon my brother. He kicked his butt. He kicked his butt really bad. The guy got like a few swings in, and he just, he, he, he finished it off. Even hit his head on the back of a car at the end. This guy, I mean, this is, this is, this is a hillbilly, okay? He gets up, and he shakes off of his dizziness, and he's like, I need a cigarette. And I mean, this was like, <laughs> these are the memories of me as a child, okay? And he goes, you know, these guys are all right. They walked away. And from that day on, two things happened. I never once again picked a fight with my older brother, right? <laughs> Second thing happened is that we never once got called Yankee, Yankee go home. There was no more protest outside of our house. There, and I, on the bus riding later on, never got called Yankee. Okay, well, guess what? Why is that? Why did that happen? Because I got a big brother that fought my battles for me. All right? And you guys are like, dang, David, why are you using this violent story to tell us this thing? No, because I'm here to tell you today that you've got a big brother named Jesus that is fighting your battles for you. That he goes before you and he makes a way. He works in the way of the enemy. And so, like, I mean, I'm telling you, God has come to fight our battles for us. He is making a way. <laughs> and he always wins. He always wins. All right, so turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Now that you've gotten one more little picture into how I grew up in the South. The neighborhood has changed a lot since then, I think. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, was still, it was still pretty crazy. All right, so 2 Chronicles. Last week we started looking at the, is the history of Israel's kings. And I just want to remind you guys, we're, we're looking at 2 Chronicles. You know, we're jumping quite a bit there. These are, we're not going in chronological er uh, order as I preach today. We're kind of like looking at some stories that kind of highlight some stories and, and stories of the kings of Israel. And today, I want us to see how God fights our battles for us, of how he goes before us when we're facing situations that are impossible on our own, when we are unable to do it in our own strength, when we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the, the courage and things that we can't imagine them ending up any other way but a disaster. This is a true story. Everybody say, true story. True story, true story of, what, of how, and it illustrates what happens when we pray I mean, it seems like we're facing situations that are impossible. Now, before we jump into 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we're going to read quite a bit of that. Uh, I, I want to give you just a, a little bit of a brief background. Now, as you know, if you've read through your Bible some, there's some kings of, of Israel that get like one sentence. Some of them get one paragraph in the Bible. They were good. They were bad. They were, they were really bad. They were evil, right? Like really quick like that, Jehoshaphat, who we read today, actually gets four full chapters in the Bible of telling of his story. Now, another little thing that scholars say about Jehoshaphat is his name was actually Johe, and then on the playground, he was kind of like that chubby kid, right? He was that one that they called Chunk and Biggie and stuff, and so they just kind of, someone came up with the name of Jehoshaphat, and it just kind of stuck, right? Oh, come on, guys. I'm just trying to help you remember the name. Now you will not forget his name and who we are talking about. All right, so he reigned over the time of the divided kingdom of the north and south of Judah. Jehoshaphat was one of Judah's righteous kings. So chapter 17, I've, uh, I've told you to go to 20, but 17 is going to be on the script, on the verse here, on the Bible here. He said, 
The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. Now, when the writer says that he followed in the ways of David, that means that he was righteous, that he was holy, that he did not worship false idols, that he chose to worship the one true God. Next one says this right there. He did not consult with the bells, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practice of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control and all of Judah Judah's no name for Israel, the divided kingdom, that part, brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the, to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places of the Asher poles from Judah. All the false worship that was going there, he tore them down. Next verse, think, right? Nope, there we go. That's, that's a verb. Now we're going to jump in there. All right, so the Lord is blessing him. The Lord is guiding Jehoshaphat as he is following the one true king under his control. He, he even sends out teachers to go into all the areas, into all the little villages, and preach the law of Moses to the people, and they gave him great wealth and great honor. Then chapter 18 is this really interesting thing where he kind of partners up with, he's kind of asked to partner up with the, the king of the north there, and it doesn't go well, and he learns a lesson really important of who you associate with and who you partner with. Like when you partner with someone ungodly, something ungodly is going to happen, and all of that happens. Then chapter 19, he's all about rebuilding the kingdom of Judah, and that's where it goes. Then it leads us into chapter 20. So learned a hard lesson. Now things are going well. Out of nowhere, here's we go into chapter 20. It says, after this, the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Mennonites declared war on Jehoshaphat. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They are already at Hazaron Tamar. All right. We don't quite get all of what that means in our history class, geography class. What does that mean? Okay. It says that here they are. They're going forward. They're trusting God. They're, they're, Jehoshaphat is leading the people there under God's control, and then on, out of the nowhere, down by the, in the west, by the, by the Dead Sea, everything's going well, then the next moment, everything kind of gets nuts. And three nations join together, confederate together, to come and attack Jehoshaphat and his city. One moment, everything is going well. One moment, things are going well. The next moment is that his very life is at risk, and his kingdom is on the verge of being annihilated. So what does he do? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do we do when we hear something threatening is coming against us? Something that we didn't see coming? What, what do we do when you don't know what the future looks like or even your own life is at risk? Well, here's what Jehoshaphat does. Jehoshaphat was terrified. This is why it's a true story. He was scared. He was freaked out. He was concerned, right? There's panic that comes in by the news that comes, by the unexpected that comes, that moment that he's terrified. But what does he do in that moment of being terrified? Begged the Lord for guidance. He was worried. He was scared. But that didn't stop him from crying out to God for his guidance, for his help in that moment goes on and he says this, next verse, he ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So the people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard of the temple of the Lord. He prayed, 
Oh, listen to this prayer. This prayer is so powerful. Oh, Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. Our God did not, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people, Israel, arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend, Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple to honor your name. They said, whenever we faced any calamity, such as war, plagues, or famine, we can come and stand in the presence before this temple where your name is honored. We can cry out to you to save us, and you will hear us and rescue us. And he goes, and now see what the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir are doing. You would not let your ancestors invade those nations when Israel left Egypt. So they went around them and did not destroy them. He's referring, hey, remember the history you told us on our way here to the promised land to not destroy those people, to go around them? Now see how they rewarded us, for they have come to throw us out of your land. It's God's land. It's not our land. It's yours land, God, which you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. Look at this. We don't know what to do, but we are looking to you for help. We don't know what to do, God, but we're looking to you for help. I love how the, that was the New Living Translation. The NIV says this. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Some of you guys thought I just made up that, that line for the series, right? Just thought that was a clever name, Damien. What to do when we don't know what to do? No, it's right there from the Bible. Now you know it's right there. Jehoshaphat in this moment, you know, if the odds are against him. It's a very overwhelming three nations coming against him, coming to attack him. And all of these, these countries coming to invade them. And immediately, what does he do? This is Jehoshaphat's prayer. We don't know what to do, God. That's humility. That's saying, God, God, we don't have a strategy, God. We don't, we, don't, we, don't have a, we don't have a backup plan. In fact, we don't even have a, an A plan. We don't know what to do in this moment. And our lives can be taken from us. This land that is yours can be taken from us. The enemy is attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. One of the things that's so crazy about this prayer of Jehoshaphat, we're going to look at a few things there. But the first thing that jumped out at me is that he didn't give God instructions of what he thought God should do. Because sometimes we pray that way, don't we? We kind of come with our ideas. He didn't say, oh, Lord, you know what would be great? Why don't you get Egypt to, to get angry at these guys? And they come down, and they attack from the south, and we come from the north, and we overcome them, and they don't see it coming. And here's this strategy, God. Will you do my plan of how I want this to go, right? No, no, no he doesn't do that. Like, when we're facing circumstances that are upon us, like, hey, God, why don't you move on my boss's heart and cause him to do this? Or, or God, why don't you just give me those lottery numbers that would really make a whole lot of difference? Or, or you sell my house for, for twice the value of what it is? Or, or God, make that girl fall in love with me, whatever it is, like we think that we want God to do these things when we're in overwhelming circumstances, we sometimes in our limited perspective, we want to tell God what to do. We're so arrogant to sometimes think that we know better than God, myself included, right? Have you ever, have you looked back at prayers that you have prayed 10 years ago? 
Have you ever looked back and go, thank God you did not answer that prayer? Because if you would have answered that prayer, how many of you have run into an old crush that you thought was the person, God, move on their heart, make them love me, make them, and like, then you seem like, oh my gosh, thank you, God, thank you, Jesus, for not answering that prayer, right? I, I, Romans eleven thirty four says this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? We are arrogant when we think we can tell God our plan and say, hey, God, will you put your stamp of approval on this? Will you make what I want to happen happen? And not realize that his plans of over the entire world are so much bigger than us and his plans and purposes for us are so much greater as his children that he wants to love and care and protect. They're so much greater than what we have in mind. The fact is Jesus when he was facing the Garden of Gethsemane, he's there praying in the garden, right? And he's praying out. We read in Luke chapter 22. Remember this? Lord, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, the one who comes and takes away our sins and removes our sins, and Jesus, our rescue plan, right? Kids that are in kids' ministry, our rescue plan, who paid the penalty of our sin. He is our Savior, but the Bible also tells us that Jesus is our example. And so if Jesus had to pray, your will be done, not my will be done, that is an example for us that we are to pray that same thing. Lord, you do what you want to do. We don't know what to do, but we're looking to you, God. We don't know, we don't know how to do this. So this, this prayer gives us a clue of how to pray this when we don't know what to do. First, we see that the prayer declares a trust in our God and, his, and remember his attributes. We talk about this all the time. Remembering who he is and what he has done will help you to continue to go to the next battle, the next challenge, when you look back and see what he has done. Look at this in uh, the next verse there. He says, going back, it says, he prayed, O oh Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of this earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. No one can. He's reminding himself and the people who God is, how powerful he is. He says, God, when he says, like, of our ancestors, of our fathers, what is the implication of that? He's saying, you took care of those from generations before us. God, because you took care of them and because you made a promise, because you are doing this, Lord, we are going to stand upon that promise. And he's refocusing his heart. And he's refocusing the people's hearts and reminding them of who God is that they can trust in him. The second thing, he reminds of God's action. In verse 7 it says, Oh God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? God, it's, it's all about you. You did it. It wasn't the great strategy of Moses and Joshua. God, it was you that did these things. It's all about God and your power and your strength and your promises and your faithfulness. He's reminding himself and he's reminding the people that, yes, Moses and Joshua were great leaders, but it's God who did the work. It's God who made this. And he calls, the third thing he does, he calls attention to God's ability over our own ability. Verse 12 says, our God, won't you stop them? We are powerless against this mighty army that is about to attack us. God, I am powerless in this situation that I'm facing. God, I don't have the answers. God, I don't know the answer. God, I could be overwhelmed by this. But God, 
we know that you are all powerful. And he's praying for God's will as he's praying God's will. Okay, follow that. He is, he's, he's praying, God, lead us, guide us into this war. God, God, give us your will of what we're to do in this moment. But at the same time, he's praying God's will by remembering what Scripture says. His prayers are already informed by who God is, by the words of God. Because when we are saturated with the word of God, when we know what God has done in the past, when we know who is, what his word says to us and for us and the promises that come with it, we can pray his will that way. When we come to our prayer of an impossible situation and we don't know what to do and it feels overwhelming and it feels all surrounding, we can pray the very words of God. We can remember those stories from the Old Testament of going, God, okay, God, I remember the story of David and Goliath. And Goliath, David walked out to those Philistines and that giant Goliath and says, I don't come with a sword and a spear to win this war. I come by the power of God inside of me. And God, I know that you are the one that saved David from that Goliath. You're the one that saved the nation of Israel from the Philistines that day. And I am going to trust and believe that you can do the same for me. God, I might not know what's happening, but Lord, I stand upon the promises of Romans 8, 28, that you are going to work all things, even things I didn't plan on, things I didn't expect, things I didn't want. You're going to work all of them for your good. God, it is in your hands. You're doing this. And we pray out the promises of God. This is why reading daily, listening to the Bible on your phone, on your, on your commute, being in Bible study, it brings these things to remembrance that we can pray as we're praying the will of God, praying for the will of God in this situation. We're already praying what we know God's will is because of his truth, because of his promises. It focuses his on God's attributes, on his actions, on his ability, is all that prayer. And after that, I love this little detail. Right here in verse 13, it says, All the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, wives and children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon a man standing there. His name was Jehazel. Listen. The entire nation's there. They're praying out. They're asking. They're fasting. They're praying out, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to answer this prayer? And he looks, and he said, I just love that little detail. It says that the little ones were there. The wives were there. The children were there. Right now, we have church a little bit different. Our kids are in the service. Our kids are joining us online. Our, 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 we're, we're all together. And this is an opportunity for your kids to get to experience worship and the word together. And we are modeling what it looks like for our kids to love God. We have an opportunity that God wants to do these wonders and answer these prayers before our very kids. A few weeks ago, uh, I was actually out of town and I caught up on Facebook, on FaceTime with the family right up there, finished their devotion. And they said in the devotion, they were talking about worship. And they said, and, and the question was, what do you think of how your parents worship? Something to that sense. And the answer is like, oh, we just asked this question. I guess what the answer was from Jude. And if you know Jude, I was like, oh, my gosh, what's the answer going to be? Because Jude is, uh, he just says whatever he thinks and stuff, you know. I'm like, okay, what do, you, what, do your parent, what do you think of your parents in worship? And his response was, I think that my parents really believe it, that they're really into it. It's like, that's awesome. 
that your kids, listen, your kids, you're modeling for your kids of what is real. You're modeling for your kids that moment that you are worshiping and praying before them, that you are praying prayers with them. You're sharing things. Hey, guys, we've got this challenge. We've got this difficulty. We need God to show up in this moment, in this situation, and if he doesn't, we're in trouble. Okay, guys, we're going to pray together. And then you, you celebrate those testimonies together. You celebrate those, those answered prayers together. You pray that together, you know? Like, well, man, so often, like, why do you think Joseph had, Joseph had resp- responded this way, of like right away with prayer? Well, he's a, he's, he was modeling what the generation before him did. What the generation before him did. Like if, if you read back into Second uh, Chronicles chapter 14, his, his dad is the king, King Asa. And he was also a guy that, a guy that followed God. And then this, these armies, says thousands upon thousands, 300 chariots were coming up against King Asia. Asia, look what he says here. It's up on the screen. It says, then Asha called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, our Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name, we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere moral, mortals prevail against you. He was modeled by his father, this call out to God that he is the powerful one. He is the one that is in charge. He's the one that can do this. Guys, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, leaders, we have an opportunity to influence the next generation. What you do, your kids are watching, you're modeling. How many of you remember the first time or you remember that moment that you saw your parents lose their temper or swear or cuss? Right? You remember those moments, right? So let's turn it the other way. How do you remember those moments when your parents prayed? When they prayed, when they worshiped, when they put their eyes on Jesus, when they directed the family in that way. Right? We have an opportunity of how we set the example for this next generation. Share those things. And I love this thing. So this Levite, Jehazel, the spirit comes upon him before all those kids and God's working and doing this amazing stuff and speaking out. And he says this, this is his prophetic response, verse 15. He says, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is what the Lord says. So they're praying together. The kids are there. The wives are there. The families are all there. And he says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This mighty army for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march out against them, and you will find them coming up through the ascent of Zizi at the end of the valley that opens up into the wilderness of Jerel. But you will not need to fight. Take your positions. Then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. He has to say that over and over to us, right? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Then King Jehoshaphat bowed low with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same, worshiping the Lord. And then the Levites broke out in worship and praise. Listen, they were facing this impossible situation. They didn't know what the answer was. They didn't know how to do this. So Jehoshaphat builds up this. He, 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 what does he do? He's praying. He builds up a remembrance of what God has done, of how powerful he is. He builds up a remembrance of his promise to their people, the people of Israel, to Abraham. He reminds them that God has been powerful in the past, that God set them here, that God has plans, that God has purposes. And as they're doing this, then this prophecy comes forth. 
Man, how many of you know that when you're praying the word of God, when you're remembering that a still prophetic word brings great excitement, great confirmation. That's what we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because we need those confirmations. Even myself this week, praying through difficult, challenging things, I know that there's these moments that like, I've got to make this hard choice and I come up and I'm like, God, I, I need your confirmation. And a guy that works in the prophetic comes and shares with me. And it just confirmed in my heart that I was doing the right things. We need those. He says, you will not have to fight this battle. God will fight it for you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. All the people. Listen, they, they fell down and they worshiped. Instead, I, look, what a moment of relief they must have had. God answered. God's going to do this. And that moment of relief of the terror that is coming, they sit down and they praise and worship. Jehoshaphat, the king, falls on his face and starts worshiping. And then the worship leaders start going, oh, wow, we just broke out into a worship service. That's the Levites are like, okay, we got to worship. We're having a worship service now. We're going this way. And they start worshiping in that moment. They're praising God. The entire place erupts with worship. But God hasn't answered the prayer yet. The battle is not won yet. What are they doing worshiping and thanking God if they have not won the battle yet? Exactly. They worship God and praise God before they even go into the battle as though it is already won. As though it is already done. And it says it is already going there. Listen to this. The next morning, the, the army gets up and they're heading out to the wilderness there. And they're, they're, they're like getting out, like they're heading out. And they, I'm sure they see or hear the army over there in the valley. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're going. God said the victory. Jehoshaphat tells them again. He stops. Listen to me, you people of Judah and Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. And you will be able to stand firm. Believe in his prophets and you will succeed. Don't forget what happened yesterday. We had awesome worship service yesterday. Hey, now we're going to the battle. Sunday we worship. Monday's the battle. Don't forget. Let's go forward. And then he says this, verse 21. After consulting the people, the king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. His faithful love endures for ever. Okay, they are heading into a battle. There's three nations fighting against them. And what does this crazy king do as his plan and as his strategy? Does he send out his special ops out front? Does he send up the, the guys with the shields and the arrows on fire and all this stuff? No, what does he do? He gets the worship leaders to lead the thing. The worship leaders. What, God? Have you seen worship leaders with their skinny jeans and their bed head and their strategically placed tattoos and their plaid pants? Like, come on, like, God, you're going to send those guys out in front of the army? Yes, that is what he's doing. Because, like, they're going to praise their way into the war. They're dressed in their holy robes. They're worshiping. They're lifting up songs. Man, can you imagine that? There they are heading into a battle worshiping and praising. So they praise God before the battle. They praise God as they go into the battle. And then you read ahead in verse 26. After the battle, what do they do? They go back and they praise God and they thank him again for what he did. There is praise, there is worship happening all around this battle the whole time. When we are facing impossible situations, when we don't know what to do, we go, thank you, God, that we trust you. We cling to you. We cling to you. We trust you, God. So they're going into the battle. Skip ahead to verse 20, uh, 2 Chronicles 6, uh, 22, verse 22. At the very moment that they began to sing and give praise, the Lord caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against the allies, Mount Seir, and they killed every one of them. 
after they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began attacking each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they did was worship, all they did was praise. As they get there and they look out, they saw their enemy were dead, lying, bodies lying on the ground as far as they can see. Not one single enemy had escaped. King Jehoshaphat and his men went out and gathered the plunder and found a vast amount of equipment, clothing, and other valuables, more than they could carry. So much plunder, it took them three days to collect it all. All they did was worship. All they did was remember who God is. All they did was focus on who he is and remember that the battle is his and they kept their eyes on Jesus. Now church, we have that option to keep our eyes on Jesus as the church of Jesus Christ, as ones that know his name, that he has, has revealed to us of who we are. But what did the enemy do? The enemy's down in the valley and they're planning an attack on the enemy. On, on, on Israel, on Judah. They're, they're planning this attack to come against them. And they're going with their man-made ideas and they're thinking about the benefits that they get of this attack and how much plunder they'll get and what part of Judah they'll cut up between the three nations of who gets what. And they are, 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 are doing this. And what, lead, what does that lead to when they're selfish, when they're looking for their own benefits? To fighting amongst themselves. To, to fighting amongst themselves and they end up defeating themselves. And I wasn't planning on saying this, but yesterday this stirred in my heart is that the church of Jesus Christ, more than ever in the situation that we are, we cannot spend time and energy fighting amongst each other. We need unity. We need to keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith in a political season, in a virus season, in a racial division season. It's everything to divide, everything to cause us to pick sides and to put people into this group, into that group. No, it is not about that. It is about keeping our eyes on the one and only king of everything. If not, we will end up destroying ourselves. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. Would you guys stand with me? We need to get back to having our eyes on him. Trust me, the scroll feed, the news feed, everything we see wants to draw our eyes down and wants to cause us to look at our, our neighbor, our fellow believer in a different way. Instead, we need to be intentional about knowing the words of God, of praising God in every situation and praising him before the battle. Some of you are going through intense challenges right now. Some of you are going through things that you don't know what the few, there's already been a lot of layoffs, there's been a lot of furloughs, there's been a lot of challenges. You, you haven't had the sales this year. You haven't had the, the movement that you thought you were gonna have by this time in the, in the calendar year. We don't know what to do, God, but our eyes are on you. Some of you are facing immense trouble and, t and, and tension in your marriage. God, I don't know how to change them. I don't know how to transform their hearts. I don't know how to soften their hearts. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. God, this, this school and school at home and this weird hybrid schedule and the calendar and the schedule of trying to drive people here and do all this. God, this is stressful. I'm stressed out. I don't know what to do but my eyes are on you. God, this political divide, it's so confusing and I'm, I'm, we're hurting one another and speaking ill of one another. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. We are going to keep our eyes on him because the moment we get our eyes off of him, we start fighting amongst each other. Now we're gonna do that this morning. We are going to 
fight our battles. Whatever you came in here heavy burdened with, whatever you came with on your heart, on your mind, you, you might be in the middle of a battle. You might be coming out of the back end of a battle. You might have a battle ahead of you this week that you don't know about, but we are going to fight our battle the same way that Israel did that day, by worshiping through it, by thanking God through it, by praising him through it. So the team's gonna lead us in that right now.